have been very eager to talk with Joseph Selby for uh, quite some time. He is a best-selling author, a dedicated meditator for about a half century, a yoga teacher. He's a founding member of Ananda, which is a worldwide spiritual movement, and he's done a number of other really interesting things, uh, but we only have a four-hour show. We can't list his entire resume. But his book, The Physics of God, is certainly one that has gotten a lot of people talking, and he's got a website where you can learn more about his work uh, called physicsandgod.com. That's physicsandgod.com. Joseph Selby, thanks for joining me on the radio. My pleasure. Joseph, um, how did you get into meditation initially? Uh, Well, when I was in uh, college, uh, University of Colorado, I had a extraordinary hallucinogenic psychedelic experience that was profoundly moving. It brought out the very best in me. I was calm, clear-minded, positive, uh, engaged with people, people engaged with me. And throughout the experience, I really felt a strong sense of presence, presence of spirit. And it was very moving and life-transforming. But I knew even then that that was a that was a gift. It wasn't something that hallucinogenic drugs would give me every time I took them. And in fact, I had taken it many times before that without that same experience. And so that really propelled me toward discovering how do I have that experience in my life again or more often. And that drew me almost inexorably to meditation. Now, I have been a fan of Howard Stern for a long time, also been a fan of uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Clint Eastwood, and all three of those men have talked publicly about how they have benefited from transcendental meditation. And I've always sort of been curious about transcendental meditation. I've never really tried it, but I've always been tempted to because of how these three men in very high-pressure jobs have talked about how it's helped them. Transcendental meditation is not necessarily the kind of meditation that you do, is it? No, but uh, there are similarities. uh, And besides transcendental meditation and the meditation I practice, there are scores of others that people practice all over the world. So there isn't one that is the very best or one that, you know, the majority of people use even. What I was drawn to were uh, techniques offered by the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. Yogananda is the author of Autobiography of a Yogi. Um, Millions of people literally have read that book, and millions of people have had uh, their life view changed by that book. So the techniques he offered, you start with one called the Hung Saw technique, which is where you watch the breath, and as you watch the breath come in, you mentally say hung, and as you watch the breath go out, you mentally say saw. It's very simple, but it tends to focus the mind, tends to concentrate you. And then he has another technique, Yogananda, that was really central to his 
whole teaching called Kriya Yoga. And Kriya Yoga is a pranayama technique, a breathing exercise that really focuses the mind, really interiorizes the your thoughts and your feelings into a, a nice, calm, centered state. So these are the kind of techniques that, as with the gentleman you mentioned, really allow you to live a busy life, if you so choose, and be centered in it, be, be calm in it. So the the Hung Sao technique, it's as simple as that. I mentally say Hung as I breathe in and mentally say Sao as I breathe out? Uh, there are more details. That's the, that's the core of it. The, the other central part of it is to begin by just watching the breath in the fact that you're chest is expanding and contracting, your body is moving, and then gradually let your point of concentration come up into the nostrils and feel cool air come in as you inhale, warm air as you exhale. And after, you know, it can take a minute, can take minutes, you eventually bring your point of concentration to the point between the eyebrows. And that is where, uh, according to yogic teachings, that's the seat of concentration in the body. It is where we tend to, you know, kind of frown when we're thinking about something really hard. Uh, It is a natural point of focus for the brain as well. And so that, those are are more of the aspects of the technique that are, uh, that make it easier to do. Uh, so if I'm somebody that wants to uh, ex- learn meditation, whether it be from you or resources that are on your website or through your books or from another source, what's the best first step in beginning the process of uh, practicing meditation? Well, the number one most important first step is to do it, <laughs> to actually just Find a technique, you know, obviously you're listening to me talk and I'm offering that technique. So if this is resonating with you, go to my website, find it on there, read how to do it and just start doing it. Uh, It's natural to us. People tend to think of meditation as something that you're imposing on yourself. But really meditation just gives you access to the deeper realities within yourself we're so much more than we know and so any meditation technique will give you access to that by slowing down the racing train of thoughts and stilling the body and just those two things even if you don't know a technique even those two things can give you really deep positive harmonious experiences. Sometimes people have them out in nature, just naturally, you know, you're sitting on the beach, you're walking in the woods and everything becomes very calm and still. And in that calmness and stillness, you feel just wonderful. You feel your heart open or at least relax and allow a sense of peacefulness to pervade your awareness. So, Meditation is a, you know, 
it's like exercise makes you stronger. Meditation makes you uh, more aware of the deeper aspect of who you really are. Mm. Uh, very, very interesting. Uh, talking with Joseph Selby, you've also studied a great deal about the science of the brain, specifically a uh, an aspect of neuroscience that medical science is just starting to catch up with, and that's neuroplasticity. And there's a couple of great books on neuroplasticity that I've read, and I find it pretty intriguing. But basically, this is a pathway to allow people to rewire their own brains for any purpose that they want. Um, How can people use neuroplasticity to improve certain aspects of their own life? Maybe it's uh, something like uh, being more disciplined when it comes to trying to quit smoking or quit drinking. Maybe it's uh, a reflection of uh, wanting to do something else. How can people use neuroplasticity in their own lives? Well, I think first and foremost, understanding that your brain is highly changeable. It is highly plastic and that your brain will wire neural circuits to support anything you do more than four, five, six times. It'll already start wiring circuits to support whatever that behavior is, uh, whatever that train of thought is whatever that emotional reaction might be. And in fact, that's the story of your brain from when you're born to today is that it has wired circuits for you to support anything and everything you do. The brain is doesn't care. It can be a bad habit or a good habit. The brain will support you in doing it. So the key, I think, to understanding brain plasticity and an and encouragement of brain plasticity is to understand that if you embark on something like starting a meditation practice, it doesn't take that long. It takes weeks to months for the brain to rewire to support that meditation practice. And it gets, that makes it easier and easier. These circuits fire when certain things are uh, uh, you know, come in and stimulate it. And the firing of that circuit sort of sets in motion uh, whatever that has been wired to support. So in terms of meditation, it will fire and your body will relax more easily. Where to begin a practice, you might be really fidgety and have a great deal of trouble sitting still or staying still for very long. But those circuits will wire and before you know it, you're able to sit quietly without fidgeting for longer and longer periods of time. You're able to concentrate um, at the, in the forebrain, point between the eyebrows, just more naturally. You, it, it's as if your neural circuits give you a boost uh, that doesn't, so therefore doesn't require as much willpower, doesn't require thinking through every step of it. And that all just kind of flows for you more easily. So you can apply this to anything. The brain is an obliging servant, whatever you want to do. You mentioned, you know, uh, dealing with smoking or unwanted behaviors. The best way to deal with those, if you're wanting to change, is to create a counterbalancing good habit that would take you away from 
the habit you're trying to escape more often and increasingly more often until your bad habit becomes something that you know, gets less and less of a hold on you. And this is because as the new neural circuit gains strength, let's say you, you have a better diet regimen, then the other habits you had for eating get triggered less often because your primary circuit is, is kind of commanding all of the attention. And it makes it easier to move away from these. They remain in your brain. Circuits remain in your brain for a very long time. There's that old phrase about, you know, you're, if you've been an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. It means that you have these circuits in your brain, and if you awaken them for, you know, whether you're feeling safe or something and feel like, well, I can have another sip or I can eat this food that's bad for me, it will tend to reawaken that circuit, and then you're back in this pattern of behavior you don't want, which is being automatically supported by this circuit in your brain. So the brain is, again, a, a faithful servant. The key with meditation, though, is that it will break through the limits that the brain imposes on us. We've tended to all wire our brains to respond to operating in the world that we're familiar with, the world that uh, we get up in the morning and experience, and we tend to interact with that world all day long until we go to bed. This is just natural. I mean, for most people, you probably think, well, what else, what else would there be? And that's really the problem is that we have, we have wired our brains to such an extent that we don't spontaneously and naturally experience higher aspects of ourselves or subtle realities. And that's where meditation rewires the brain to allow you to have those kind of experiences and break through the limits you've, you've created for yourself in the way you wired your brain. Uh, talking with Joseph Selby, you can check out his website, uh, physicsandgod.com. How did you get into studying that subject, uh, the kind of the science of religiosity or spirituality and specifically the physics of God? Um, I grew up in a family that, uh, you know, worshipped science rather than religion, really. (laughs) And as I like to joke with people, a dinner table conversation required references. So I grew up very much with... Uh, a mind trained in the kind of rational way of thinking and in the scientific outlook. And when I went off to college, uh, I thoroughly expected to get a degree in science because I liked it and I did well in all the, the subjects surrounding science. But then, you know, my path took me into meditation and into um, this wonderful experience of helping get the Ananda community started helping get the Ananda movement going, and that has become the the heart of my life. But all that while, I never uh, lost interest in science. And 
one of the aspects that I love about the teachings of Yogananda is that you don't have to give up science. It's not a belief system. It is a, a, a you know, meditation is scientific in the sense that if you practice it like you're practicing an experiment to see what kind of results you get, you can measure the results by how you experience it. You don't have to believe anything for, for meditation to work. So those two aspects came together, the sort of scientific nature of, of meditation and that approach to spirituality, and my long-term interest in science. So for all of the years um, from college onward, I've just stayed on top of various subjects that, that and, and various books and various writers that explored what I think of as the intersections of science and spirituality. And had I not had four kids and you know, started a business in order to afford having four kids, I probably would have written that book, The Physics of God, uh, decades ago. But it only, uh, it only came in the last few years when the kids are grown and gone and I have more of an opportunity to really focus on it. But all that while, all those 40, 50 years, the ideas were always with me and I was always chewing on them and I was always reading other books. So I was like eager, <laughs> eager to put together the two sides of that picture, the science and, uh, and spirituality. One thing you said that I, one thing you wrote that I really enjoy, and I think you're absolutely on the money about this, is that the people that are scientific adherents and happen to be skeptics of religion or uh, overtly hostile to spirituality, they almost have adopted their own religion of scientific materialism. Explain to folks what you mean by that. Well, scientific materialism is a, a sort of philosophic viewpoint, and the philosophic viewpoint happens to be grounded in science, but it is still a, a viewpoint. It's still a belief, which is that uh, nothing but matter and energy exist, period. That is the foundation of scientific materialism, and therefore everything not only can be explained by the interactions of matter and energy, they will be. So even though scientific materialists haven't shown how the brain can create consciousness, they're convinced in their belief system that it's just a matter of time before science figures out how the brain creates consciousness. And this also applies to the origin of the universe. It applies to the origin of life. That uh, they just believe it, it, it. There only is energy and matter, and therefore, energy and matter will eventually be able to explain everything. But it is a belief system. They don't uh, use the scientific method of inquiry mm. in any and all directions. They use the scientific method of inquiry only toward uh, explaining things in terms of, of matter and energy. So consciousness gets sort of short shrift. Anyone who uh, 
ventures out of that belief and says that consciousness exists beyond the brain, outside the brain, is basically just ignored. And when that person has the temerity to to really push it forward, then they're attacked by scientific materialists. But there's really reams of evidence that consciousness exists outside the brain. It's just not accepted within your typical scientific circles. What about ancient civilizations? What have we learned from them and what have you learned specifically from ancient civilizations about the way the brain works, about meditation and sort of the science of meditation? Well, uh, meditation has been taught uh, in uh, India. Obviously, today's India is a particular, uh, you know, political boundaries. But that area um, has been the kind of mother of meditation going back 3000 B.C., 4000, 5000 B.C. There's evidence that uh, there are figures seated in the lotus posture, looking like they're, they're meditating that go back that far. So meditation, somebody, uh, Yogananda, I think, actually said this, is that if you uh, eradicated all knowledge of meditation from everybody on the planet, they would soon reinvent it. It's sort of the same fundamental truth as mathematics. You eliminate all knowledge of mathematics, across the world and they'll start reinventing it because it's it's a basic truth that uh, mankind will keep discovering so uh, meditation goes goes way back well we're gonna have to end it there fascinating fascinating discussion joseph selby you can check out the website physicsandgod.com. You can check out the books on there, and if it, there's a lot of resources if you're interested in learning how to meditate maybe for the first time or try a different form of meditation from one that you've, you've tried previously. Joseph, thanks so much for the time this morning. Oh, it's been my pleasure. All right. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. When we return, I'll tell you why my wife is ready to nominate me for the Parenting Hall of Shame. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.